Pita, we're both parents because dogs are the same as children. I think we can both agree. <laughs> totally. <laughs> okay, good. How old are your kids again? Uh, son is 12. My daughter is 16. Oh, adorable. And my dog, Foster, who's just the same as your children, is around five. So to <laughs> us and to all other parents and prospective parents out there, there's actually some new information about anxiety in children. Would you like to hear about it? Ooh. Uh, no, it's, mm. it's, it's not what you're thinking. Okay. I don't think. Is it going to make me more anxious or less? Because, you know. Oh, probably more. Here we go. (laughs) In a new study in the Journal of the American Academy of Childhood and Adolescent Psychiatry, or the... Researchers found that offering treatment to parents of kids with anxiety disorders was just as helpful as treating the kids themselves. That was a lot of words. Do you want me to break that down for you? If you could, and hopefully with bullets. Sure, absolutely. Um, What it means is if your child has anxiety, a lot of children can benefit from the parents going to therapy instead of the child because um, it'll help the parents cool on certain behaviors that might be accidentally accommodating anxiety in their children. So this was at Yale. And this was the Child Study Center at Yale. And they said parents who overaccommodate anxious children are well-intentioned, but that can unfortunately cause more anxiety. These overaccommodations could include, let's see, answering a question reassuringly from a worried child over and over and over again, speaking up for a kid who is socially anxious, taking part in elaborate nighttime rituals, or taking kid to an unnecessary doctor's appointment because they think they're sick. This is absolutely going to give you more anxiety. <laughs> I didn't think about yeah, no, this. You've, yep, this is not working out as intended. I'm listing other things that we do to ruin our children. <laughs> yep. But wait, there's more. Have you heard, <laughs> have you heard of space? <laughs> what? Space, supportive parenting for anxious childhood emotion. This is the program that they have parents go. So it's not just learning how to neglect your child. It's basically just learning how to reduce your accommodations while still supporting and acknowledging the difficulties their children were facing. Here's a quote that, I mean, just tumbles off the tongue so easily. I'm sure you're going to use it three (laughs) times today. Quote, for example, in the case of the parent who is responding to many repetitive questions throughout the day, the parent may learn to say, little quote, I see how anxious you are, and I know how hard and uncomfortable that feels for you, but I know that you can be okay and that I am not helping you by answering all these questions, so I'm not going to answer anymore. (laughs) See? (laughs) What a just a natural thing to just say out loud if you're a creepy doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. See, you say that, and it's funny until I think about some of the things that I say when I get that same sort of thing. And I, like, I, I get this is where we are right now in our sort of social development in our conversations, like around the dinner table, where I'll say something that really is like normal human English words. Yep. And then uh, my son will say, wait, what do you mean? And I am totally stymied. I have no idea how to make it more clear. And so I say, I don't know how to make that more clear. Do you want me to just say it again? <laughs> and sometimes, sometimes that's all it takes, right? Got it. Yeah. Usually, yeah, he'll just say, oh, I see what you're saying to me, which means either he did understand it and he just likes his mouth to move or he's just or moving on <laughs> he's just he's just, or he didn't hear it and deeply does not care <laughs> i think mostly the latter 
<laughs> Either way, it's kind of a lose-lose. I don't know. It's, it's a lose-lose for me, certainly, but it's really, it's kind of adorable, too. <laughs> uh, well, in this study, after 12 weeks, the kids who received therapy themselves had just as much benefit, says Yale Smarties, as those who got no treatment but their parents did. So it's just another option, I guess. And I was make, I was joking, of course, when I said that dogs are the same as kids, but there is an interesting correlation that I just figured out while I'm talking with my mouth. If there's a dog passing us on the street, and I'm, oh, I'm sorry, if I'm walking Foster and there's a dog passing us on the street who looks like it might be rough, I sometimes find that I tense on the leash a little bit. And that immediately mm. gets Foster on guard because the leash tension is telling him, so I've been told by trainers, there's something to be alarmed about. Wow. So there's a little bit of the, by accommodating him to stay away from Scary Dog, I accidentally instead say, hey, Scary Dog's coming. Grab a knife, I assume, is what I'm telling him. Uh, wow, so Tom, that's amazing. I've been walking my kids all wrong. <laughs> Welcome to What's That Smell, a sometimes funny podcast about humans and their anxieties. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Tommy Metz III. And every week, we each drag one of our deepest, darkest anxieties into the light to share it, learn about it, and hopefully laugh about it with all of you. Reach out, send us the story of your anxieties to something stinky at whatsthatsmell.net. That's really dug in. Something, mmm, something stinky. Ah, at what's that smell.net and with that tommy i'll go first <laughs> and with that i quit <laughs> tom i <laughs> i love i love cereal so much <laughs> that's the podcast or the breakfast food <laughs> you know I'm a huge homonym head. <laughs> uh, I also, uh, I love coffee. Mm. And uh, oh, I love cakes. God. Oh. Cakes. And frosting, even. Without oh. the cake, right? Like That's term. just aces. Sure. Do you know you get the little tubes? The frosting tubes oh, that look like you mean toothpaste You're tubes? not taking it off of a cake. You're just no, going I'll, straight. Your main I have. Now. Oh, I have in the past just done that. If a tube comes in the house, like to decorate another project, that tube might disappear. And it just becomes a little thing to take a suck off of, take a hit off the <laughs> off the frosting. Yeah. Okay. I love popcorn, kettle particularly, but popcorn, Coke. Yep. Oh, Coke. I can, I can just, you know, if I close my eyes, yeah. I can... I can feel the that sort of sweet bite of Coke in my mouth as I mm. swish it around, right? Mm -hmm. Ugh, and amaretto sours, Tom, candy drinks. You know, uh, I'm a, I'm I love me some amaretto theme. sour. Okay. Oh, no, wait, you said coffee. I'm not seeing a theme. Okay. Oh, no, there's no, th no, no, no. I could drink those amaretto sours all day, even with the little cherry. I don't care. I know it's a lightweight drink, but I love it. And a good sure. ice wine, maybe with some meats and cheeses. Tom, when <laughs> I close my eyes, I dream almost immediately in the language of substances that I know are dangerous to my constitution. Oh, got it. Okay. Can I say that part of me really hoped that you would have said, and Amaretto Sours, and then the song would roll, and we'd say, coming up next week. <laughs> like, that was the, the whole podcast was just a weird list of things. 
and we never explained I would, it. I would need to embellish that list because it goes on. Got okay, it. I, okay. It, I've had to. There have been cuts. Sure. Let's just say this. Uh, and we've talked about, you know, my issues around, uh, you know, food and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff in the past. But I, I, it's that metacognitive experience, right? It's the way I think about the way I think about things mm-hmm. that is is finally sort of coming into focus for me over the last three seasons of this show. And I have I've decided on my uh, my fear of the week. And, and it is thus. I think I'm afraid of my own addictive personality. Ooh, yep, sure. What do you think? I think that that is very relatable to everyone. <laughs> I don't know. I I know a lot of people that I think that have said at one point or the other, like they never want to try blank because they have an addictive personality. Yes, and and that is the road that I went down this week. So okay. it, it all started, obviously, with diet, right? When I start down the path of behavior that's destructive to my health, I, I, there is a dopamine push that comes out of that, right? When I eat that that Big Mac, right, or second Big Mac, I feel liberated because <laughs> it's like a big F you to the universe. So like, see, I can do what I want, right? We know that. Okay. Alcohol, like I generally don't drink right now. I haven't had a glass of wine with dinner in a few years. Socially, I can count two occasions on which I've had alcohol out with friends in the last couple of years. Wow. In college, when I drank more, thanks to hindsight, right? (laughs) I know that this is this relationship of fear. When I drank, I felt no fear, right? Yep. This is liquid courage. Right, right. It's warm. There's no social anxiety. We parade around like jesters at the party and we're making people laugh and we're saying things we regret and we may wake up in uncomfortable places. I know you know the drill. <laughs> I call it Thursday. <laughs> I, uh, I think that I have been tossing around that language of addictive personality probably inappropriately. And and I wanted to figure out what does that even mean, right? Is there really one be-all, end-all personality that is more prone to addiction than others? Do you know what That's I mean? A, like, I like, do. It, I would think that genetic, I mean, some part of it is genetics. And I think, isn't that, is it, wait, I might be making this up. If your family members, immediate family members say we're alcoholics, does that make you more prone or is that just like social pressure and you do what you see? It's Oops. like you're channeneling. Oh no. My <laughs> you're channeling my research. This is amazing. Did you I skip as ahead? always are <laughs> a lightning rod of intelligence <laughs> and instinct. You make me sound so smart on this podcast. And then the podcast <laughs> ends and I walk outside and immediately step on a rake. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I well, it's research time, Tom. Okay. And I, I have sort of a good news, bad news kind of thing for you. So first, the the good news. Yeah. Turns out that the idea that there is one personality type that is sort of pan addictive is a straight up myth, and it, it's really? born of all kinds of stereotypes. Like if if I ask you, Tom, quick, t- give me the your gut level stereotype of an addict. Describe them for me. Go. Shaky, impulsive, uh, not good with money, um, probably thin, which is a plus. <laughs> <laughs> Got that real sweet, sweet horse body. Oh, I mean heroin <laughs> horse, not that they have the body of a horse. Uh, <laughs> things like that. Is that what you mean? Uh, sure, that's what I mean. Okay. I would also say that the stereotype typically involves race. 
right? The one thing you didn't say and that is often first uh, uh, pointed out in the research is the stereotype. They're usually African-American. Oh, no, I wouldn't think that about well, that. That is, as it turns out, what the research looks like. They're also uh, there is also some sort of incarceration. Probably they've been in jail sure. or they're on the way to the jail. Yep. They live on the streets. Yeah, they right. And the so too many coats or not enough coats. It's always about coats <laughs> and probably socks. Right. Yep. 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 Uh, so it, it, that is a straight up myth. And and uh, the other side of that is that, uh, you know, when you have the uh, have that sort of cultural stereotype that had been deeply ingrained over decades, then when you see, a, a, you know, a 40 something white guy uh, who is addicted to substances, that's presented as an anomaly. Right? As, mm, okay. as, as a thing to be as, as, you know, not a normal part, a wrench in the system. Right. Got it. Okay. So uh, research published by Scientific American, uh, originally by Maya Solovitz, from uh, she has a, a book that uncovers a lot of this uh, material, anyway. says that addiction, get a load of this, okay. might be better classified as a learning disorder and challenges the addictive stereotype thus. I'd like to read a passage oh. from her work, if okay. you don't mind. I do not. Fundamentally, she says. The idea of a general addictive personality is a myth. Research finds no universal character traits that are common to all addicted people. Only half have more than one addiction, not including cigarettes, and many can control their engagement with some addictive substances or activities, but not others. Some are shy. Some are bold. Some are fundamentally kind and caring. Some are cruel. Some tend toward honesty. Others, not so much. The whole range of human character can be found among people with addictions, despite the cruel stereotypes that are typically presented. Only 18% of addicts, for example, have a personality disorder characterized by lying, stealing, lack of conscience, and manipulative antisocial behavior. What was the percentage again? 18%. Really? This is more than four times the rate seen in typical people, but it still means that 82% of us don't fit that particular caricature of addiction. And I should add that she herself is a recovered a recovering addict. Mm. According to her research, addiction should be better framed by this conversation around learned behavior, not specific personality typing. That's right? the learning disorder that she brought up. Okay, got it. Exactly. Addiction is about self-regulation. And again, according to Salovitz, the brain regions that allow self-regulation need experience and practice in order to develop. If experience is aberrant or if those brain regions are wired unusually, they may not learn to work properly. What? That's <laughs> what? What? <laughs> so, for instance, like if you are growing up and your parents are mainlining donuts. What does that do to you when you're 30? Exactly. Well, wait, though. OK, with this in mind, because you started with a whole list of foods and beverages mm -hmm. that you consider vices, but apparently float around your head at all times. <laughs> Like some weird, you just got hit in the head with a pan. Oh, and you're a cartoon character. Um, can you connect any of those dots to your life about your well, feeling about those things? It, well, I, yeah. I mean, I grew up with all of the things that I listed. I grew up with and and love. Amaretto and sours? Only, well, 
<laughs> in the sippy cup, baby. No, I, you know, amaretto sours were definitely a later, uh, sure. a, a later uh, acquisition. But, um, you know, I grew up on white bread and cokes, and like that—that that was just food of the suburban '80s. You know what I mean? So it's just what we knew. Um, and it, what's most interesting about this is I left my house. You know when when you do. And immediately after that, my mom was diagnosed with celiac disease and my parents' entire lifestyle changed. After you were but gone. But it changed after I was gone. Well, that's no help. Right? So I think that I, uh, you know, the, the other message that I left with, you brought up uh, genetics earlier, and that happens to be one of the the things that is, um, you know, has historically uh, been connected to addictive behavior, right? Mm-hmm. That if you're if you come from a family of addicts, you're more likely to have uh, this thing. But now we're, po- we're we have to ask this question. Is it really a genetic connection? to addiction or is it that you grew up in the space of addicts right and so you learned addiction. So like a nature versus nurture exactly yeah stupid nature nurture again stupid nature nurture again <laughs> <laughs> i just like saying things real fast um i think i mean there's the nurture has to be a huge part of it it has to be it just makes all the sense in the world which yeah. is also even more heartbreaking well, a little bit. And and so I did not grow up uh, my it was my I, there is a significant uh, alcoholism in my extended family, my in my, uh, you know, generations past mm-hmm. my, you know, my dad is, uh, you know, I think you would characterize him as sort of the same as me, like just always feeling kind of at risk of mm. going down this path. And it was his father that really struggled with alcohol. And and so, you know, he was an adult child of an alcoholic. And I sort of feel like the adult grandchild of an alcoholic. And those sorts of, the, it, you sort of feel haunted yeah. uh, by that experience, by the stories of granddad who, who you know, died this way. Yeah. And um, and, and so that, I think, fuels a lot of the anxiety around what if, what if I'm that kid, you know, what if sure. I'm the guy, what if the next drink that I have is is going to cause me to fall down that road? I was actually I- excited to read that this is learned behavior because that means there's hope. Any mm-hmm. learned behavior can be unlearned, right? Mm, it can be point. unmodeled. Yeah. Right. And that that I find enormously optimistic. So great. Now that we know that addiction can happen to anyone, that it's a learned behavior. Wait, does it, it sort of implies that you might not really know if you're truly addictive until you're already engaging in the addictive behavior. Sure. Hi, Catch-22. Well, right? that, yeah, that was that was both hopeful and a trap hidden at the yeah, end. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's exactly what it was. So there there are signals. And that's what I really wanted to look at. Like, what yeah. are the signals that we're talking about? And, and according to uh, Slavic, the, the signals are all in, around, in and around impaired self-regulation. So mm-hmm. are, are you b- either obsessive or compulsive or both, right? Whether you're failing to stop a compulsive action or failing to end a damaging habitual routine, right? The things that you can't stop doing. That's an indicator that you might be at risk for falling into patterns of substance abuse. Are you otherwise anxious, right? That's what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because it's also you're using this as a self-soothing or, yeah, I mean, I don't know if we would call opioids soothing, but you know what I mean? (laughs) Like, unfortunately, this goes hand in hand with anxiety because it's a way of blotting that out. Exactly. 
Exactly. Uh, and so, uh, again, uh, we talked about genetics related to others who have developed an addiction or, you know, are you experiencing any other mental health disorders? And this goes back with anxiety. Are you being treated medically for any of these things? Because once you start with a substance to help you control a behavior, you are, according to the research, you're internalizing as part of your identity. You are someone who takes medicine for this. You are medicated. And this could be, uh, you know, you you might be taking drugs to, to help you with your ADHD. You might be taking drugs to help you with your cholesterol. Whatever it is, depending on how you learn the behavior of taking medicine can actually put you at risk to taking medicine addictively. Huh. And here's an indicator, and this is a mad trick. If you get your medicine from an alley... <laughs> <laughs> Warning sign. You might be an addict. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I want you to to think about this. Say okay. you're somebody who takes meds. You take meds? I do. For some for anything? All right. When you leave the house in the morning and mm-hmm. you have forgotten. And I mean like let's say you're at the door and you've just locked the door and you remember right then. So you're still at home and you have to say, "Oh gosh, I forgot." Finish that sentence. I forgot to take my Lexapro. Okay. I could say. You my friend, are at risk. Just from having that thought? Because you just said my Alexapro. Ah, my sweet, sweet Alexapro. Right. Well, on the just as a side note, it's usually because I'm on such a baby dose, what my doctor mm. calls a baby dose of Lexapro. If I'm all the way at the front door, I will still leave. <laughs> I, I won't. It's too far to go all the way back to the bathroom because you don't. I just don't really feel it that much. But no, I absolutely said my Lexapro. That's interesting because it's a part of my identity. Exactly. You've made it a part of your identity by calling it mine. Right. And if you want to learn a new behavior to relate differently to the medication, just don't personalize it. Sure. Oh, I forgot to take the Alexapro. Right. Like right now, today, I have been prescribed this medication. As soon as you say my, you're internalizing a sense of permanence, a sense of identity to it that you don't you won't know a a world without it. Hmm. And uh, if you as soon as you give yourself some distance from it and you not personalize it, then you are you're releasing that bit of your identity and you're giving yourself the opportunity to kind of reengage. And I I could take it or leave it. Right. Right. I don't want to be someone who has to take uh, medicine to go outside every single day. Now, I do want to say, and this is really important. Please don't listen to this show for medical advice. Sure. We're we're not here to give medical advice. And in fact, I have a very strong, positive opinion about the role of pharmaceutical medication in our lives. (laughs) It has helped me. It helps me all the time. I'm not suggesting that you should suddenly try to stop taking (laughs) your medication because you fear you might be addictive. Please talk to a medical professional. Medication is great. It is a savior of humanity. And Mm. uh, I'm just suggesting that this is an interesting thing to think about. And looking at addiction as a a learning disorder, it's not about the medication. It's about the, the mindset. So please, please don't stop taking medication every day just because you listen to this dumb show. Anyway, what do you think about that? That's, that's really right? that's really interesting. No, that makes a lot of sense in a way that I've never thought of before. Me too. That makes a ton of sense. Well, because I always <laughs> when I I have talked about myself of having a addictive personality, 
before. And one of the reasons that I, I don't know if this connects enough. I've never really done cocaine. <laughs> Not Be- really. Right. Because <laughs> I think I would love it. <laughs> And do you know who doesn't need cocaine? Me. <laughs> right. I know, Is, I are think, there a lot of people out there yeah. going, yeah, we like Tom, but can we see him at a 20? Like, come on. I'm already screaming. at. Po- I've already talked to this podcast about people at just alone in a house with someone else telling me to keep it down. Like, I'm already a mess. So what if cocaine is like the second coconut? What if it actually makes me like real quiet and sort of introspective? <laughs> Because I already have weird cocaine, like homemade cocaine in my head. I don't know if any of that was worth it, but... Give Tom a bump and he becomes part of the nouveau intelligentsia. <laughs> exactly. Just It's just one rail and it's just all Tolstoy. <laughs> Pete, today's regret. You know, those little regrets that you can't stop thinking about. And slowly erode your entire mind with anxiety and regret. Well, that's what that's what I want to talk about real quick. I was actually listening uh, like a real narcissist to our podcast <laughs> while I was walking Foster because it's been I think listeners know we record way in advance. And so I it sort of gives you a chance to forget some of the things that we've talked about. So I was listening to the one where you were talking to Cole, listener submission Cole, who said he was afraid of the dark. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm walking Foster and we're walking <laughs> down the sidewalk at a brisk pace as we do. And you said, as humans, we are nocturnal by nature. Do you remember saying that? <laughs> I do. So you said nocturnal by nature. And like a verbal tick, I yelled out, not because I hate you, because it <laughs> reminded me of that naughty by nature song. <laughs> so you said nocturnal by nature and I yelled, not because I hate you, sort of flap. You can't see I'm flapping my, well, what I forgot to tell you is there's a woman right in front of us walking and she jumps. <laughs> oh, wait a because, minute. You're not talking about like in the show. Oh, that, no. This is happening while you're walking the dog? While I'm walking the dog, listening to something <laughs> that only I can hear, I'm walking behind this woman and out of nowhere yell, not because I hate you. She can't hear you. She can't hear anything. I'm walking a small pit bull screaming, not because I hate you, at this woman who kind of goes, ah, like jumps to the side and I have to go, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> And then I'm about to explain, and I was like, there's just no, it's, the backstory is too long. So we just ran away. (laughs) We just immediately took the first left. It was not where we wanted to go, but that was where we were going. That is my regret of the week. Not because I hate you. Here's something you won't regret, Tom. You know, I often think, what would I do with my brain in times where I am not stimulated by conversation or work? You know, those silent times, the times where where I'm supposed to be taking in the world around me and, and it, it, really exploring what it means to be bored. I choose not to do that, Tom, and <laughs> I choose to break that boredom with Audible, the <laughs> fantastic uh, uh, boredom-breaking tool of the modern era. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible, and you can break your boredom, too, with a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial to explore the service and the wide range of of audio uh, products that they have there at audibletrial.com slash scent 
of a podcast. I think as there's too you, many options, by the way. Uh, there might be, because yeah. as you have done the research, you know there are over two billion titles to choose from. Oh my from. God, they jumped up since last episode. Do- they are wow. working so hard Woo. to fill your boredom blocks. Now, for you listeners of What's That Smell, you get this free audiobook, and I would like to recommend Unbroken Brain, A Revolutionary <laughs> New Way of Understanding Addiction by oh. Maya Zolovitz. I remember her from just a second ago. We That's just great. talked about her a minute ago. Yes, she's she is uh, fantastic. I'm going to be honest with you. I have not read this book yet, but it is my credits, my two credits for my very own subscription just renewed today. Mm. And I have already added Unbroken Brain to my audiobook library. I cannot wait to read this based on the, the uh, work that she's already done that I read for this show this morning. This is is going to talk to you all about addiction, uh, the addictive personality, and reframing how you think of addiction as a learning disorder. You can unlearn addiction. What do you think of that? I can't wait to see what Maya Solovitz has to say in Unbroken Brain, a revolutionary new way of understanding addiction. All you have to do mm. is visit audibletrial.com slash scent of a podcast and start your new account there. You'll get your free 30 days. You can download this book or any other book you choose and you can uh, go to sleep tonight knowing, hey, I supported What's That Smell? I'm a better person for it. Thanks, Addiction. No, thanks, Audible. (laughs) (laughs) I think the wrong thing. Pete, for my section of this amazing podcast sponsored by Audible, we have another listener submission. Would you like to hear it? Mm, Oh, I would like nothing more. Okay. This is sent in by Mac. And I want to tell you uh, this email that he sent in was extremely well written, but I'm going to have to paraphrase it for time. Something that will surely drive Mac crazy. (laughs) For reasons that will quickly become clear. Mac, my apologies, but we got to keep moving. Here we go. This is what Mac wrote. Paraphrase. My anxiety is my general inability to engage in timely correspondence, whether by email or by text or even by phone. It's not a phobia. No, it's not a phobia. I'm not afraid of initiating contact or responding to messages. It's more of a psychic roadblock or speed bump. When I get an email that I need to respond to, I add it to my to-do list and then it will often be a week or two before I, quote, get around to responding. Though I often play it off that I'm too busy to reply, it's not that. It's that I need to be in a particular mental space in order to draft professional or even personal text or email in more than one line. By the way, I selected that verb to draft very carefully, as I do most of my words. This is, I think, the root of the problem. I cannot, for the life of me, just jot off a response. For every sentence in an email I ultimately send out, I probably wrote three or four other versions of that sentence or paragraph or phrase that I deleted and edited over. I'm not sure where this perfectionism about my correspondence comes from, perhaps the finality of an email or text or an ego-driven demand that the prose in my emails live up to some imaginary standard of erudition that is in line with my self-image as an educated person. Oof. Whatever the cause, this is probably the, quote, neurosis that has had and continues to have the most impact on my day-to-day life. And although I'm not sure whether it's impacted my professional life in a substantive way, it has resulted in me having to begin far too many emails with the phrase, quote, my apologies for the delay in getting back to you. Signed, Mac. All right. 
First and foremost, thank you so much for submitting, Matt. Uh, my apologies for mangling parts of your well-written email. Please know that I absolutely had to look up how to pronounce erudition, and I still feel like 25% of that. <laughs> uh, Mac said it's not a phobia, but how dare he diagnose himself? Listeners, that's our job. Only Pete and I are allowed by podcast law to misdiagnose everyone to the worst of our abilities. So in my surely incorrect opinion, I think Mac is suffering from a mix of a tichophobia, which is the fear of failure or making mistakes, uh, and the aforementioned curse that he brought up of perfectionism. Now, before I turn to you, Pete, I just want to say first and foremost, nope, we're on the seconds. Second and second most, Mac, even a cursory internet search will make it clear that you are not alone at all. There are dozens and dozens of blogs about dealing with email procrastination and the hopes of achieving, this was a new phrase for me, Inbox Zero, both capitalized. Have you heard of that, Pete? Inbox Zero? Oh, yes. You have. I've never familiar. heard of it. People really want inbox zero. And that just means you have no nothing in your inbox to get back to. So you have achieved inbox zero. Also, there are tons of blogs offering alternatives to saying, quote, sorry for the delay. So clearly it's a wide reaching anxiety. Now, Pete, how do you identify with this? I mean, you already know what inbox zero is. So and half the blogs I read were from you. <laughs> well, so, uh, you know, one of the things that that Inbox Zero came about a long time ago, um, I think 2006, maybe a little earlier than that. Really? Uh, and it's a function of it, it was it, it was sort of uh, originated by uh, a guy named Merlin Mann based on the work of uh, David Allen through getting things done. Like Merlin Mann was an early sort of mm. acolyte. He even ran a, a website called 43 Folders, which was, you know, based on the practical applications of the work of the getting things done methodology by David Allen Co. And uh, so I you was... You just have all of this in your mind? <laughs> I'm telling you, man, you don't know what, what a you A huge just amount opened. of proper nouns. Wow. Okay, go for yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I was I was also one of those acolytes. Like I was a huge fan of getting things done. And I was a huge a fan and advocate of uh, Inbox Zero. And uh, it was a way for me to keep up with the, you know, the ADHD stuff, too. Right. With, you know, if mm. I'm overwhelmed by signal coming in from too sure. many different places, you know, I had to have a way to organize the work that, that would come in because email is such a a power vacuum, right? It takes you three seconds to jot down a request that might take me an hour to to resolve, <laughs> right? Sure. And that sucks, right? That's it just, doesn't seem fair. Yeah. Nobody is thinking about that when they send an email. Nobody is thinking about the fact that that what you are doing is requesting valuable, limited resource of another human being, hmm. right? And and I think that's terrible. So inbox zero is simply a way to process quickly um, to, to kind of develop the muscle of decision making so that you can eliminate the the signal overwhelm that comes from looking at an inbox with a thousand or 10,000 or 100,000 email messages in it. And that's definitely something that we see. So um, for me, it manifested in like really working hard to create only one inbox, right? The work box. I called it the work mm. box. And so that okay. was in my my work management system. You know, it was OmniFocus for a while. And right now I'm using Todoist. And I know I'm talking about all of this stuff that <laughs> is not stuff we usually talk about, but I'm way into it. Yeah. And so 
I do, I'm one of those people that schedules time to respond to important emails. And so when an email comes in that I need to work on, I will shoot it over to Todoist and add it as a task, which is reply to this email about XYZ. And I'll put it on a date and time. And then I will archive the email from my inbox. And that's the idea. So at the end of the day, the work that comes in from email is scheduled appropriately where my work is managed. And my inbox, which is just this email like <laughs> vat of signal is right. clean at the end of the day. And I go to bed with a clean conscious. That's oh. how I work. I like how I'm just realizing that I never read any of the articles about Inbox Zero. I just <laughs> looked at the words Inbox Zero and said, got it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not respond to everything really quickly right now. It's actually the no. opposite. It's repurposing. It, it's and, repurposing. It's got like it. <laughs> figuring out what it, it's like in being able to develop the muscle to interpret quickly what needs action, what can be addressed quickly. And what uh, is is something that's just FYI and sure. and then put it in a place that that you need to put it. Well, y- you know, and scheduling email, a time to get back to emails is something that yeah. has not occurred to me. And that makes all of the sense in the world. Well, you know what else? When do you check your physical mail, Tom? Like when you get paper mail, when do you check it? Once every couple of days when I'm coming back in the with Foster. See, there is a movement to uh, of folks just from in the productivity circles to say you need to be thinking about your email the same mm. way you think about your mail which i don't and check that, every day more exactly. than once ever and it right? reduces stress by by saying okay email is just another inbox signal and mm. if if things are really important if there's a building that's on fire they're not going to email me about it right they're going to pick up the phone they're going to call me they're going to send me a text they're going to find another way to get in touch with me email doesn't have to be the be all end all and those uh, and so you know that can allow you a little bit more freedom to schedule the important work that comes as a result of email to you mm-hmm. um and not feel like you have to respond to everything quickly. That is an anxiety that I I feel like I I addressed and overcame, and I feel pretty good about it. I don't know. I feel like are we are we veering off course? Do you think this is helpful? No, this is incredible. Okay, good. Is, I'm a little ashamed that everything you said is more helpful than everything I did. Uh, so <laughs> I have some other stuff, but no, this is perfect. I'm so glad that you're knowledgeable about this stuff because, as I said, it is clearly wide reaching, and I know for yeah. me. I mean, your idea of I'm going to have to after the show, Todoist, I'm going to have to write that down because right. I I just have a problem with procrastination in general. Like if there's something that makes me a little nervous for any reason and there isn't immediate accountability, it just goes in this huge pile that I call my anxiety lake because then I'm just like <laughs> floating in it and I'm like, I'll never get anything done. And then finally, when it becomes too insurmountable, I'll sit down and do a flurry of things like write back eight emails that I was uh, not doing and do this thing and do this thing. And then I sort of feel better. But the problem is I forget that huge amount of time when I was feeling terrible. I get, I think I accidentally sometimes get addicted to the rush of feeling better and then pain fades. So I forget. Yeah, but I spent three days putting this off, always having it hang over my head. Um, So yeah, being able to put it where it needs to be, I kind of want to try inbox zero. It's never going to happen. There, there but. are a lot of ways to <laughs> a, a, attack this from a, a like practical productivity perspective, right? And there are so many tools and and uh, you know methodologies that you could use. Triple P <laughs> and and you just uh, get that? Ways, yeah, I did. It took me a few seconds. Yeah, uh, and, and ways to approach this, but 
so much of it starts with what you are able and willing to give yourself permission to not be perfect at. Mm, perfectionism. You have really nicely gone into the next part. Yes, please continue. I think there is a, a com- competing methodology I just read about the other day, which is sort of the laissez-faire do nothing. They actually have coined it inbox infinity, which mm-hmm. means, you know, in the era of Gmail, e- email just comes in and it just lives, right? It right. just lives and you might have 10,000 emails in your inbox. And you know what? Inbox infinity says, who cares? Mm. And and in fact, Inbox Zero and Inbox Infinity are kind of, you know, two sides of the same coin. Really, what you're doing is you're saying information that I need to find that's related to work. I should be able to search for it no matter where it lives. And uh, also, the most important work of my life should take place in the most important channels in my life. And email has become mm. a decaying channel. It is no longer useful to me. And so um, I'm I I need to work where work happens and email isn't always that. And that sometimes runs headlong into the the sort of conflict of people who don't agree with your philosophy and count on you to be receiving email. Right. Right. Not a lot of people can be so kind of cavalier with how they choose to communicate. Right. um, In in a work environment, for example. But uh, but I'm seeing more and more of that kind of in the face of email, complete email overload. Yeah. And com- and well, communication overload more specifically. And you also you said cavalier about the way of answering an email and you were a lot of what you were talking about is time. The time yes. that you spend. Another thing that is a movement that I have seen see I'm so desperate to have a movement on my own. It's totally not a movement. But have you heard <laughs> about the idea of email like a CEO? Uh tell me about this. Oh, this is this the the one-liner is okay yes. kind of a thing? Yeah. yeah. That it Talk came that. partly in response to the Sony hack and the Hillary Rodham Clinton hack. Uh, that right. Amy Pascal, who was at the time in charge of Sony, and so a multi-billion dollar, I mean, she is the CEO of CEO Hillary Rodham Clinton, almost president, and the emails that were leaked, they're writing in all, they're writing in one sentence, it's all lowercase, and it says things like, why are you punishing me, question mark, which he, she was writing to um, Scott Rudin at the time. Hillary Rodham Clinton, countless emails of her just saying, where are we on this, question mark. That's it. That's the whole thing. No ramp up, no hello. And a lot of people are starting to find power in that email like a CEO really take back. It's doing the opposite of what Mac tortures himself with. It's just get to the point. And then, you know, you don't have to have everything be this huge, uh, eloquent thing, especially because that's elevating email like you're sort of saying, to something that it is not. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that. I think a lot of people give Apple a hard time because on the iPhone, in the default email client, there's a signature that says sent from my iPhone. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I see two sides of this. When I hear, you know, when I just see it, I, I immediately delete it, right, in my own email. I just, I don't, I don't, mm like it there. But when you hear how Apple decided to put it there, it starts to make more sense, right? It was originally there as a sort of subversive apology for errors that might be transmitted in that email. Sent from my iPhone means I'm using a mobile device with a touch-based keyboard. And I'm probably on the go. That might, yeah, and mistakes might happen. So, um, you know, that was a way to Mm. communicate. I'm sending email, you know, on my mobile. It's also a a subversive branding element, and I find that distasteful. Personally, I think it's gross. Sure. But 
But I do get it. And I think that there's something, you know, I'm seeing more and more people who are, you know, changing that and saying, okay, I'm sent from my clicky clicky device, you know, and they're making up words to put in their signatures. And it's it's <laughs> yep. fine and cute and dandy. Mostly it's just, you know, right. Um, yeah, I'm I'm I am treating email as it should be treated. This, mm-hmm. you know, it was at the time the most instant way that we could communicate to get words from one person to another in this new era. Now, other things have made that communication faster. It doesn't mean email has to be a place where you believe that you need to write a treatise that is perfectly formed, perfectly formatted, right. and will be read as you intend it. Because if anything, we have learned over the last decade, it never will. Right. And we've talked about that on this very show. Right. Uh, about how the stress of texts and emails not actually conveying any nuance, any emotion, and how problems can come from that. This is something that I read. Um, it was a blog that was talking about a book called Too Perfect, When Being in Control Gets Out of Control. I thought this was interesting. Uh, part of the perfectionist's credo is the notion that other people won't like you as well if you make a mistake or if you don't know things, or if you allow your faults to show through. In fact, the opposite is true. Your need to be right all the time often repels friends and associates. Nobody will ever feel empathy for you, love you, or enjoy being close to you simply because you are right or because you hardly ever make mistakes. That seems really harsh at the end, just because my mind just goes to no one will ever love you. Yeah. And as you know, I only read the first sentence of everything in box zero, <laughs> but they are right. She is right in sort of poking that beast of I am like Mac is saying sort of I am as I write. Yes. That I will not be considered smart or likable or any of those things if I make a mistake in my email. And of course, rationally, I think he knows that that's not true, but rationality and anxiety do not get along. They do not often go hand in hand. No, they're a mess. Um, Just one, if you want to try something, I'm not saying that uh, I have helped you solve anything, but uh, there was something that I found about perfectionism and how to try to combat it is hypothesis testing. Hypothesis testing, it's a really fancy way of just sort of saying you believe something, so try the opposite and see what happens. So what they uh, there are a lot of books about this, and they all pretty much, from what I can tell, boil down to if you have writing perfectionism, give yourself a time limit. Say, I have to respond to this email, not in three days, in one minute. And I only have time to say one minute. Or purposefully spell something wrong. Or Ooh. if that's a little much, don't proofread it. Don't go back, like he said, and try the sentence three to four times. The idea is send that off and watch how the world does not melt. And just see what happens. How the person did not notice or didn't say, hey, you misspelled or misspoke irradiation, which I still don't know. (laughs) We might have to go back and re-record that. It's just an idea of poking at your insecurities, just showing yourself how you put yourself potentially in a prison, but you have the key. So use the key, give it a try, and see if maybe that sort of helps. It's, again, everything sort of comes back to exposure therapy. Yeah. In some way or another, I thought that was interesting. Well, you know what's so great about that? And I think this is this is the central point that I would jump onto too, is that this it it feels like the anxiety is all about not wanting to make a mistake. So you tackle it by making fewer mistakes. And 
that, as it turns out, is ultimately a, uh, you know, tilting at windmills, right? right? You're just going to create more stress in your efforts to be more perfect more of the time. And really what we're talking about is just coming to the understanding that the people, your recipients of your communication are never reading as closely as you are paying attention to your writing. Right. And there are times to be perfect. There are also there's time to give yourself a break and just get the message across as much as you can. I believe it. And uh, Mac, again, thank you so much for uh, submitting. We really, really appreciate it. And I have a little extra gift for you. If the anxiety just gets too much and you want to try this sort of hypothesis testing, but you don't know how to do it or want a way to feel good about it, take Pete's suggestion about that little signature. If you're writing something and instead of sent from my iPhone, say dictated, but not read to Tommy Metz the third, put it on me, buddy. <laughs> put it all on everybody, the whole WTS nation say that it's my fault. I can take it. You know why? Because of the amount of cocaine. I'm <laughs> it's all Tolstoy. It's all Tolstoy. <laughs> Thank you all so much for joining us on this episode. Today's tune is Slide by Simon Osterhold. Coming up next week. What did you do to break your addiction? I I think I binged it. (laughs) That's how robots are going to get us, Pete. That makes them the ants of the techno world. Wake up! And then proceeded to wear his ass as a hat. Like, that is the (laughs) worst response I have ever heard from a medical professional. Until then, I'm Tommy Bentz III. And I'm Pete Wright. Thank you for downloading. We'll be back next week on What's That Smell?